This morning I want to speak to you from the subject of renewed living. Renewed living. To the end that our life with one another would reflect the life, peace, and love of Christ within us. I want us to take uh, this up in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Let's read those verses. Colossians 3, verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Renewed Living Well, we've been given an order to stay at home. And that's the order in most states across America and in most places in the world right now. Although this order distances us from people outside our houses, the stay-at-home order puts us in close and continual contact with the members of our household. While for many, this may be an exciting opportunity for some precious moments we too or three, or four, or more can share, it can so easily become an opportunity for you to want to get away, or say, hit the road, Jack, and don't you come back no more. No matter what your circumstances, you are always called to love the ones you're with. That is what renewed living is all about. It's a big part of it. You loving others as Christ loved you, because Christ loved you first. This kind of living, we will see again, is firmly rooted in God himself and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The book of Colossians reveals, as you know, the preeminence of Christ Jesus, how he is central and must have first place in your life in order for your daily living to be fruitful, pleasing, and glorifying to God. In Colossians 3, verses 10 through 12, we are commanded in that context to put on the new man, which, which means to put on the likeness of Jesus Christ in whose image we have been created. No matter who we are, barbarian, Scythian, Jew, Greek, we can't say, well, because I'm a particular ethnicity or a particular gender or whatever it might be from a particular culture. I just can't be a patient person or whatever it might be. We're all called in Christ Jesus to put on his likeness. However, this command comes within a context, a context that reveals the means and motivation for daily following this mandate. In chapter 3, verse 1, 
we are told that all of our Christian living finds its foundation in and flows from being powerfully raised by God with Christ. You were dead in your trespasses. God made you alive together with Christ, reconciled you by Jesus' death, forgave all your trespasses, canceled the record of debt that stood against you, nailed it to Jesus' cross, stripped Satan of his authority over you, and triumphed over Satan. Jesus did that by his cross. And because of these things, we are called to seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And it is in this daily seeking and setting our minds on things above that we find renewed power each day to live like Jesus. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, is the foundation. It's the fountain uh, from which the renewed lifestyle of chapter 3, verse 5 through 17 flows and is sustained. So we cannot consider the commands of verses 12 through 17 without first seeing them in light of the context and content of verses 1 through 4. We talked about being raised with Christ, but we're called to seek the things that are above, to set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And these these things are behind uh, our putting on and putting off the things we're called to in this chapter. And it's important to pay attention to the wording. What things are above? Specifically, what things are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God? What is being talked about? Is it simply heaven? It's, it's a lot more than that. That's part of it, but there's at least seven things that are going on. First, it's a call to seek authority the authority of Christ Jesus himself. The Bible says, and what's behind Colossians chapter 3, is Psalm 110. There it says in verses 1 and th- one through 3, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. This passage talks about God giving Jesus authority and promising him to subject his enemies to his feet. After Jesus' mighty work on Calvary, God says, take a seat and I'm going to make your enemies submit to you. Not only that, but because of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God, it says that in that moment of his power and authority that is ongoing, your people will be willing to offer themselves freely in holy garments. What things are above where Christ is seated? The power and authority to live godly and to overcome sin in your life. Second, acceptance. Acceptance, not only authority, but acceptance. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse uh, 3 and 4, it says, He is, speaking of Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. 
and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So you see there, it, it's very clear that our acceptance is tied to the purification that Christ made, and after which he took his seat uh, next to God, God's right hand. You have been accepted. You have an advocate with Jesus. You have been justified by him. And that's demonstrated by Jesus having taken his seat. And our life is meant to be lived in light of the fact that we've been accepted by Christ. We've been accepted by God because of Jesus. And we should live our lives in light of that reality. Number three, uh, what things flow from Christ being seated at the right hand of God? Well, the power to attest, to bear witness by the power of the Spirit to Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the book of Acts, in a number of places in the book of Acts, but we'll look at just a couple, uh, couple of verses in Acts chapter, chapter 1, uh, Jesus says in verse Eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Um, it's spoken first to the apostles, but it also applies in principle to us. And we see that carried out in chapter 2, verse 33 and following, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this what you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And as you know, that passage goes on where Peter calls people to repentance based on the reality that Christ has taken his seat in heaven at the right hand of God. So power to attest, power to bear witness to the authority of Christ. They are the things that are tied to this passage. Fourth, we should seek adoration. We see this not only in Hebrews 1, but in Revelation 4 and 5, that what's, what, what, what's true about Christ being seated at the right hand of God is that he is worthy, he's worthy as the Lamb to be praised, to be worshipped. We should seek to worship. All these things are tied to renewed living. Number five is access. Access to God in prayer. Jesus is our great high priest. He's gone through the heavens and he ever lives to intercede for us. And we would be wise to bear in mind the things that Jesus prayed when he was on earth, and we should be pursuing those same things in, in prayer. We have access to God because Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Six, we should, we should pursue aid, divine aid. The Bible says, seeing then that we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And so we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And that's what we should seek. We should seek divine aid. What's going to make you put to death these things and put on these things? It's a life of prayer, a life of dependence on Jesus in prayer. 
And last, we should seek an anticipation. It says that we will uh, appear with Christ in glory, and that's, that's, uh, that's our hope, is that we, and it's not a hope like I hope that's going to happen, but it's a strong, certain hope that we are going to appear one day with Jesus in glory. And that all these things drive this life of putting off certain behavior and putting on uh, the behavior, the characteristics, the likeness of Jesus Christ. Renewed living flows from these things. Renewed living is also directly linked to what we have become. Not only what we have access to, what we just talked about, but what we have become in Christ. If you look there at verse 12, it says that we are God's chosen. That is, those who are elected, that's the word, justified, those who have, who can never be charged or condemned, as it says in Romans 8.33, where the same word is being used. You have been declared by God because of Jesus just as righteous and just as sinless as Jesus. And in light of that reality, you're called to put on certain behavior, certain characteristics, because you are justified. Secondly, we are holy. We are those who have been set apart by God from sin for his particular service, set apart to become like him. That's also what holiness means. It's set apart to be like Jesus. Third, we're to put on uh, the qualities of Christ Jesus because we are loved. We are beloved by God. You think about the baptism of Jesus Christ and God said about his son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Well, in Christ Jesus, God says the same thing about you. That you are adopted, you are accepted, you are well-pleasing. You are loved by God. God's love is unfailing. His love is eternal, and it's set on you. And it's a love from which you can never be separated from. When we truly know God through Christ by the Spirit, it renews our whole lifestyle. Our knowing God, the fact that you know God, should be evident in your close encounters with others, in the little particular things of life, especially other believers. We all have heard uh, the story, if you were arrested and brought to trial for being a follower of Christ Jesus, would there be enough evidence to maintain the conviction? We are all called to put on, in light of the fact that we are justified, holy, and loved, we're called to put on compassionate hearts. The only reason you are God's chosen ones, holy and loved by Him, is because you have a Heavenly Father of compassion. God is the Father of compassion, and that's the sole reason why we're chosen by God and justified. True compassion, however, never remains simply a heart feeling. True compassion is never simply internalized. But like the Good Samaritan, it takes a risk. 
of narrowing the distance between yourself and those in need in order to serve. Rather, what Paul is emphasizing with, with saying heart, compassionate hearts, is compassion that is genuine, that comes from a changed heart, not a hypocritical appearance of mere of mercy for, for show or human praise, but real mercy that moves you to act. True compassion is mercy. It's, it's a compassion that resolves to get involved until the problem gets solved. From a distance, artificial flowers look beautiful, but there's no life, no smell, no root or substance, just plastic or paper. They are not growing out of good soil. The pot they set in is hollow and empty. But true compassion comes from the heart. What also characterizes this compassion is it's undeserved and unearned. Paul said in another place, using the same words, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God did not consider your prior work to determine whether to show you compassion. And so you must not demand people earn your compassion either. In Luke 6, it says, Be merciful, same word, even as your Father is merciful. It says this in the context of loving your enemies. That's what it's talking about. It's saying, be merciful to enemies. And if this is true of enemies, how much more should it be true of brothers and sisters in the church? It should be part of the fabric of the way we live. We are also called, uh, secondly, to put on kindness. Again, this quality flows from the cross of Christ. This word is the same word used in Titus 3, verse 4, which unfortunately the ESV renders as goodness. Actually, the word for kindness is used in both places. And again, what Paul is emphasizing is kindness, which seeks to benefit another person. And it's free. It's given not because someone has earned it or has been kind to you, God's kindness was applied to us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, because God is merciful. And we're called to be kind as well and merciful. We're supposed to be kind to others, not because they've been kind to us, but because we are kind people, made that way and constantly being made that way by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we behold Jesus Christ. Humility is next. This is the same word used of Jesus in Philippians 2, but in humility count others of more value than yourself. Have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What's going to make you ever think that someone is more valuable than you are. It's beholding Jesus Christ who thought of you that way when he was hung on the cross. 
daily looking for ways, small ways, to serve others, not fighting over toys or books or the remote. Again, we hurry to point out that Jesus was this way towards sinners, rebels, and perverts. And how much more should we be this way with one another in the church? We are called uh, also to be meek. This quality, like all the others, flows from Christ Jesus' cross. Jesus said, For I am meek and humble in heart. Meekness is driving a Ferrari the speed limit. We've heard this before. It's limiting yourself to the will of God. You are meant to be a limited addition. There's a lot of things you could do, but meekness limits itself to what you should do. You're a rare addition loaded with special features that don't come with the standard model. Related to meekness, we next have patience. Patience means tolerating evil without responding in an evil way, but purposely seeking to respond with kindness. Being slow to anger, suffering long with people and their sin and their weaknesses. The same word that's used of God when Israel provoked him to wrath with a golden calf, back in Exodus 34, 6. The Septuagint, which Jesus quoted all the time, uses the same word in Greek. We again see how this quality is seen in God in the context of grave sin against him. But he is long-suffering, and so must we be. In all of these characteristics, we're called to exercise these things in a gracious manner because all of these characteristics that we've looked at are related to a context of being hurt, a context of being this way with people who have sinned against us. Directly related to um, this patience is putting up with or bearing with one another. This description of renewed living assumes you are dealing with a believer's sin, their annoying and awkward behavior, perhaps. It assumes, as it goes on to say, you have a complaint against another. You have been sinned against and are hurting. You have a legitimate grievance. What do you do with that? The same thing Jesus did with your, the grievances he had against you forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Forgiving each other assumes it is a two-way street. It doesn't say forgiving others. It says forgiving each other. We often get this one wrong. We tell people, I forgive you, but then we want nothing to do with them. Or we make it our business to remember the evil they did to protect ourselves in the future. This is not forgiveness. Seeking reconciliation and restoration go hand in hand with true forgiveness. And if reconciliation, a desire to be reconciled, and a desire to be restored, and pursuing those things as much as you're able to, if they don't go along with your saying, I forgive you, then it's not forgiveness. When God forgave you, he sought you, he 
sought to be reconciled. He sought to be restored. That's what true forgiveness does. It releases a person from the bondage of their guilt because of the sin they've committed, and it befriends that person and renew into more renewed living together. Our passage begins, put on then, in verse 12, and in verse 10 it says, to put on the new self, the new man, then in verse 12, put on then, and these qualities of, of Christ, and in verse 14 it says, put on love, which emphasizes love as it says, above all things, put on love, because it's the bond of perfection. We have seen the limitation of cheap forgiveness. You can have all the things we've been talking about without love. We've seen the limitations of empty compassion. But love is meant to drive all these things and ensure our application of these qualities reflect God who is love. You can bear with others in an unloving way by longing to be rid of them. You can feel some kind of compassion. It's not real compassion, but you can have some kind of compassion in your heart and never take the next step to actually showing mercy to someone. Compassion is never meant to stay in the heart alone. You can you can be kind to people. You can be humble. You can be meek. You can be patient. You can, you can express behavior that looks like these things. But it can be done for selfish reasons. You can be humble before someone because you don't want them to embarrass you. You can be meek with people because you don't want them to annoy you or hurt you. And all that is self-centered. But it's when all of these traits we've talked about are bound together in love. That's when they are actually exercised and applied the way God has applied them to you. And then it goes on to talk about the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts. It's so fitting for chosen ones who are holy and loved who have peace with God, to exercise that peace by having the peace of Christ ruling in their hearts. At the risk of sounding random, toilet paper sales are up 123%. I don't know if you know that. Uh, gun sales are up 80% due to the virus. People buy guns to guard their toilet paper, even though they don't have anything to eat. Hate crimes, on a more serious note, hate crimes against Asian Americans are on a rise, all due to the virus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. We saw last week how the government that Jesus brings is one of increasing peace. And it's a government that will have no end. It's a government that's characterized by people beating their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks and people no longer learning war. Jesus is our peace and the mind stayed on him 
and praying to him is kept in perfect peace. And we are called to be a people characterized by this peace of Christ. It's something we should be praying for, for our Asian American friends and brothers and sisters who are in the Lord, those who believe. We should be praying for the peace of Christ not only to rule in our hearts, but again, things rule in the heart in order that they might take shape outside of us, not simply stay in our hearts. But we're to pursue peace, the well-being, the shalom of the city in which God's called us to. We're supposed to seek the peace of the people that we involve ourselves with on a daily basis. I don't know how peaceful your house is, but sometimes our house is like a war zone and we need to go to Jesus and humble ourselves and pray for peace with one another, that the peace of Christ that he has with us, we would have with each other. And prayer is a good place to begin and the word to be thankful illustrates that at the end of that verse. Not only that, but Christ's word is to richly dwell in us. This is a great opportunity for us to apply this as we stay at home. TV, movies, and other books are an easy escape, but, but the growth of the body, the growth of your growth in Christ and the growth of others in Christ is essential and depends in part on Christ's word informing your heart, dwelling richly in your heart, and through you informing members of the body of Christ. That's what it says. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And so that our admonition of one another, our teaching of one another, would lead us to worship together in our hearts. Again, this the emphasis on the heart, that things would be genuine, that things would be authentic and not hip, hypocritical worship. And finally, what characterizes renewed living is the name of the Lord Jesus. Whatever we do actually includes what we say, for it's whatever we do in word and deed. Jesus is central to renewed living. We get nothing apart from Jesus. Every spiritual blessing is, is in Jesus. We can't talk to God without Jesus. So often we pray and don't mention his name. We can't do anything without Jesus. He says, without me, you can do nothing. We have no promises apart from Jesus. We have no life or joy or hope or help without Jesus. It is only appropriate that he is the main subject of what we talk about, the main reason for everything we do. Why do we do anything? It's because of Jesus. So again, Jesus is the foundation. He is the motivation. He is the exemplification, the example of everything we do, everything we say, is to be a reflection of Christ Jesus. And so what that teaches us is that the word of Christ really does have to dwell in us richly so that the character, the manner of Christ Jesus is what flows out of us. Everything we say and everything we do, we are actually able to take a pen and sign the name of Jesus to it. 
that we speak in the name of Jesus. We do in the name of Jesus so that we can sign his name to it and it would bring no shame to him. You are a letter written by Jesus to be read by the world. And may it be true of us in our close quarters, and one day, Lord willing, when we get out of our close quarters into this world, that people would see in us the life of Jesus Christ and what it means to have redeemed living, renewed living, through Jesus Christ. God bless you.